Well, good morning, you all. I am so excited about this series, and the reason I'm so excited about it is Colossians is an amazing book about Jesus. Now, I don't know where your relationship with Jesus is today, but my hope is in this series, you're going to see a new side of him. You know, you can live this whole life and not find out everything there is on this side of heaven about the miraculousness of Jesus and his power, not only to save us on the cross and rise again, but to lead us. Isn't that true? Jesus is an amazing leader. And if we follow him and give him a chance to lead, we will see our lives change. So I'd ask you again, if you would, before we dive in, let's have a quick moment of prayer, just us, you and me, and the Lord, and we'll dive into this amazing book. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to come and worship with your people and to focus on this book that you've given us where uh, Paul wrote a letter to a, a bunch of people just like us who were meeting first in homes and then in gathering places and following Jesus as uh, years had gone by and he had risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, they were still following him. God, I thank you for giving us a, a, a Lord to follow, one who that we can just trail after and learn from and uh, like the old Jewish rabbis, get the dust of his sandals on our foreheads as we just follow and watch, watch him and listen to him and, and absorb him. God, as, uh, as we enter into this new series and as we get into Colossians, I just pray that your power would come, that your spirit would descend. Change our lives, God, and, and let us see a new side of Jesus. In your name we pray and together we say amen and amen. We're studying this book of Colossians, and of course, it was written to a little church, kind of like this, maybe the size of ours, in a town called uh, Colossa, and uh, this place is in Turkey today. And in fact, you can still go to Colossa, and you can rent a nice hotel suite and dip your toes in some amazing hot spring water that flows naturally out of the area around Colossa. Colossa was known back in the time of Jesus as sort of a place of healing because the natural spring water that flowed there had all kinds of really amazing calcium deposits in it. So people would drink the water and bathe in the water. It would heal things on their you know, problems with their skin and heal stomach diseases and discomforts and such. And it was a, a big trade city where there was a lot of wool produced and sold and, and all kinds of really cool happening things. And the little church was meeting there. Uh, this was about 60 years after the birth of Jesus, so about 30 years after he ascended into heaven. And what's really interesting about the story of the Colossian church and the way Paul's letter rolls out to them is at about the same time Paul was writing this letter to the church in Colossae around 60 AD, we believe, uh, within a year or two of that, the entire area was completely destroyed by an earthquake. So what you find in this story is Paul is writing to some new Christians, most of whom were not Jews but were Gentiles, and coming into this new faith, many of whom would die in an earthquake just a year or two later. Their lives would be devastated. The town would never be the same again. And in fact, after it was completely destroyed in an earthquake, there was a small remnant of people that stayed there and continued to do business. But we really don't know what happened to the church in Colossae after that earthquake. What's also interesting is that Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians from uh, a house imprisonment. He was in, in under house arrest in Rome for a couple of years. And he had Timothy with him, his assistant and his 
a, a disciple, one who was learning his ways of teaching and leading. And so he dictated this letter to the Colossian church. It was a church that he'd never actually been to. But one of his students, Epaphras, had planted this church in Colossae. So this letter is steeped in language that is going to be good for us here, specifically at South Naperville. Why? Because we are learning from someone who not only taught people how to plant the church at Colossae, we are also learning from people uh, in Colossae by the way they approach their life and by the way they receive this letter and by the things that would happen to them when the earthquake would hit. Many of the people who would hear these words from Paul would not be there two years later because of the earthquake. So what I want you to be really attuned to as we get into this letter is a couple of different nuances. One, uh, the immediacy of life and the power of Jesus, but also how much Jesus loves you and leads you and at the same time is God. Jesus is God. Let's get in a little bit further and dive into the story as we go. We were uh, looking at the life of Paul as the author of this letter and realizing as he wrote it under house arrest that there were some specific things he wanted to communicate. First of all, some heresy had started to make its way into the teachings at the church at Colossae. Some people were teaching that Jesus isn't God after all. In fact, he probably was just a good prophet. It's a sentiment that you'll find in today's culture as well. A lot of times in today's culture, when people say the name Jesus, what's the context of it? It's either a curse word or it's a joke or the name of Jesus is somehow being diminished so that Jesus is not worshiped or seen as the deity that he is, the God that he is. And so Paul was writing this letter to people who had begun hearing teachings that were false about Jesus, that Jesus is not all that he said he was in the Bible. So he's refuting those teachings and correcting that young church, a church probably about our size, and teaching them that they can place their faith in the real Jesus, the one who is God. And that faith is unshakable. Now that's going to come in handy when that earthquake hits. Wouldn't you agree? So let's look, take a look. The idea of Jesus being a deity, the idea of Jesus being fully God, starts to develop in the book of Colossians. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to actually just read some straight out of the scripture for you. What I'm going to do is set up the letter with Paul's greetings. And this is, if you're following along, uh, by the way, you can find the letter to the Colossians in the YouVersion app that you can download for free. Or you can simply Google Colossians and find the text. I'm using a version called the New Living Translation because I love the language in it. Basically, the beginning greeting from Paul goes like this. He says, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy, who was actually handwriting the letter as Paul dictated it. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossa who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, may God our Father give you grace and peace. Grace was a Greek greeting. Peace was a Jewish greeting. He wanted to make sure everyone was included and greeted. 
Paul goes on and says, We always pray for you, and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven, which is everlasting life. You've had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. The good news of Jesus is what saves. That is why we teach it and preach it and live it. Paul says in verse 6, The same good news that came to you is going out all over the world, the known world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. Now listen to this fruit that the word of God is bearing in their lives. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker who planted the church. He is Christ's faithful servant and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you, which is why we serve and why we give. So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you, which is why we pray. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you will live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce again, he says, every kind of good fruit. All the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. The idea of fruit being born in the life of a Jesus follower is foundational. When you come to know Jesus, and guys, this goes beyond just attending church and attending church services and attending church gatherings. When you get to know Jesus, stuff starts to change inside you. Something that was dead is brought to life, and then growth starts to happen. And what is that growth? That growth is fruit-bearing transfer of faith to other people. So the inviting that we're doing, the idea of talking about doubling in number over the next year, inviting people to come and hear the good news of Jesus, is more than simply a religious activity. It is engaging in the work of God that bears fruit for how long? For all eternity. The more people who can be brought in front of the good news, the more people come into God's kingdom, the more people has in his love and under his protection and under his watch. And that is what he wants. He wants growth. He wants new things to come out of the dead that we were before. The Bible says we were spiritually dead and were brought to life in Christ even while we were dead. Paul goes on and finishes his conclusion and says, We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so that you will have all endurance and patience you need. And may you be filled with joy. So when that growth happens, it produces something in us that goes deeper than happiness. It produces joy. A joy that is based in peace. The peace of Christ, which passes all understanding. Something grows in us that was never there before. It is peace, and it is shared with more people and more people and more people. May you be filled with joy, Paul says, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness where we were before and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Now let me ask a theological question. 
How did Jesus purchase your freedom? He went to the cross. And what's the rest of the good news? He didn't stay there. He was transferred to a a real tomb, but he didn't stay there either. Where did he go next? Out of the tomb, up into heaven, and then into each one of our lives and our hearts. And then we get to the central core text for today, which starts in verse 15. If you ever need to know a job description for Jesus, the Son of God, remember Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, specifically 15 through 20. I want to draw your attention to the power of this text. This is what Paul says. Christ is the visible image of an invisible God. But what does that mean? If God is invisible, then how can Jesus be the image of God? Well, that word that's used there for image, the Greek word is icon. If you pull out your phone and look at your apps on your phone, you see a bunch of icons there, right? If you tap on one of those icons, what happens? Well, if your phone is charged and it works, what's going to happen? The app behind that app, that icon is going to open up and it's going to give you some sort of functionality that you didn't have. Particularly as you check in on Facebook, you can't check in on Facebook by looking at the icon. You tap on the icon and what happens? Facebook opens. And so does a whole world of communication, right? Which is why we check in on Facebook to share what God is doing here. But if you never tap on the icon, then the functionality of what that icon represents doesn't ever do anything for you. It doesn't ever work. Jesus is the icon of an invisible God. He is the way for us to experience God. Jesus and God are one. And so as you look at God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the way for human beings to be able to understand that concept is through Jesus. Jesus is 100% human and 100% God. Now the math of that doesn't work. I understand. It's irrational. It's illogical. Jesus is the one who calmed the wind and the waves. And in fact, he did more than that. Stay tuned. Look at this. Christ is the visible image of an invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation, the Bible says. For look at this. For through him, God created everything. Now look at that for a second. Let that just seep in a little bit. Jesus was actually the one who did the creating. From the beginning of time, when Genesis says in the beginning, who created? God created. God there is Jesus. Jesus is more than simply a carpenter who was born human, grew up for 30 years, led a bunch of people, and died on a cross. Jesus was there before everything. And in fact, he was the general contractor who spoke and made everything happen. Look at this. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him, and check this out, for him. Everything was created through Jesus and for him. For him for what reason? To love, to rule over, to rescue, 
to redeem, to die for, and then to rise again to new life for. Everything that has been made, humans, earth, animals, sky, sun, water, everything you can think of that has been made was made by Jesus and for him, for him to love, to die for, and to redeem. He existed before everything else, verse 17 says, and holds all creation together. Now, have you ever thought about that before? Have you ever read that before? Jesus is the one who not only made everything, but he also holds it all together, which if you want to understand a concept, you look at its opposite and compare, right? If Jesus wanted to, he could do what? Let it all fall apart. But he holds it all together for one reason and one reason only. Do you know what that reason is? The reason is he's patient and he wants everybody possible to come to know him while we still have this life before what the Bible calls the end of times. Jesus is the one in charge of that time frame. He is the one giving us every opportunity to learn how to share our faith and to grow in our faith. He is our great commander, our leader, our redeemer, our savior, our Lord. In short, he's a pretty big deal. Are you kind of feeling that yet? Take a look at this. Verse 17, again, he existed before anything else and holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. So we establish right off the bat, we establish without a question, as Paul has said here, that Jesus is God. Now, when we say the creed, you know, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and then what's the next line? Maker of heaven and earth, right? So how do we say that Jesus made heaven and earth, but then we say in the creed that God made heaven and earth? Well, God the Father made heaven and earth through who? Through Jesus. He deployed Jesus as general contractor, savior, and redeemer. That is Jesus's function. Christ is also the head of the church, the Bible says, which is his body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. Now, on Friday, we had a new addition join our church. This is little Ivan McCaskill. He was born by C-section on Friday afternoon. You haven't heard from his parents, Angus and Linda, yet on social media because they are busy. They're really, really, really busy today. And so when we do our prayers here in a few minutes, our prayers of the church, we're going to pray for them and lift them up. But what I want you to understand and see, as you look at the face of that newborn, one true, clear, honest teaching. Jesus made that. He made that. He made the one who fathered that and mothered that. He made the place in which that will grow and dwell. He is the author and constructor, the general contractor of all life. He's more than just a carpenter. He's more than just a sacrifice. He is amazing and supreme, all-knowing, all-powerful, and at the same time, all-loving. He didn't hesitate to lay all of that down 
to save you and me from our sins and from ourselves. I love what Jesus can do. Jesus is the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. All of us who trust in Jesus rise from the dead. The Bible calls him the firstborn over all creation. We'll get into that shortly. He is the first in everything, for God is all his fullness and was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So Jesus conquered death for us after he made all life. Now look at the cycle of this. Jesus made all life and at the same time overcomes that, that which would take life away. We have an enemy. We have a force against us called death. The death that we face, the enemy that we face, was brought on by our own sin, our own rebellion from Christ. Jesus overcame that and did what was required to draw us by our heartstrings to himself. In the way that he went to the cross and died and rose up again, he overcame death for you and me for how long? Forever, for eternity. Paul wants the Colossian church, just like he wants our church, to remember what a big deal Jesus is, how all-encompassing he is, how all-powerful and all-loving he is, and at the same time, how willing he was to give all that up for a time so that he could save you and save me. So when we think about the concept of death, don't let death be an ending where you see permanence and a closure of your life uh, uh, under the uh, door of a casket. You see death now as something as you don't have to be afraid of. Even if the ground starts to shake under you, you don't have to be afraid of death. Why? Because Jesus went into death before you and then went into what before you after that? A resurrected, permanent eternal life. And all he asks of us is to simply trust that that is true and that he is who he says he is. Paul goes on and talks about the idea of this peace. He said, he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And in verse 21, he says, this includes you who were once far away from God. The Bible says that you and I were conceived in sin. So even little Ivan, from his very first day in the womb, was conceived apart from God and separated from God by sin. And at the same time, Jesus covers him too. The faith of his parents lead him into a relationship with God. God's grace covers him too. But he had that problem from the time he was conceived, just like you did. And I did. You were his enemies, the Bible says, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body on the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, the technicality of that was justification. You and I were made just in the eyes of God because a sacrifice took away the effects of our sin. 
And yet we have the power to refuse that message and say, no, God, no, thank you. I don't want that, Jesus. Jesus died for us anyway, whether we receive him or reject him. We know that he died for us, all of us, including all of his creation. As a result, the Bible says he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Now think about that for a second. Even the sin that you committed just an hour ago, the sin that you will commit an hour from now, maybe the sin you're thinking about now as you think about what you're going to have for lunch, whatever that might be, Christ has it covered. He's had it covered from the beginning. And the message is simply this. The message is Christ has it covered in you. He died for you and conquered death for you and leads you with all the power, preeminence, and glory of God in him. And he doesn't leave any faults remaining in you. Have you thought about your own sin and your own faults and your own failings before God? Did you know that God doesn't see those in you anymore? He doesn't see them. Now, just for a moment, I want you to think about the worst thing you've ever thought. Think about the worst thing you've ever thought. Maybe it was how you'd like to have something you don't have. Or maybe it's how you'd like to take away a person you'd like to see gone. Think about the worst thing you've ever thought. Think about the worst thing you've ever said. Maybe you said some words in anger and lashed out at someone who didn't deserve it. Or maybe they did deserve it and you went over the top. Think about the worst thing you've ever done. Maybe you took something, you stole something that wasn't yours, or you stepped in front of someone else in line and took their place. Maybe you did something that you knew was wrong, but nobody else saw. Did you know that Christ has removed the guilt of that from you as far as the East is from the West? Every thought, every word, every deed is covered and gone by what Jesus has done. Now that's kind of hard for you and me to accept and to realize, isn't it? It's kind of tough to believe, but we teach it, we believe it, and we walk in it. As a result, the Bible says, he's brought you into his own presence and you're holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single thought. And here's the but, look at verse 23. It says, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Now, let me ask you a question. How ironic is it that Paul is asking a group of people to stand firm in anything? Because someday, what's going to happen? The ground underneath their feet is going to shake. What is he asking them to stand firm in? In their trust in Christ, their belief in him. Because when the physical ground shakes or the emotional ground shakes, or the relational ground shakes, or the financial ground shakes, or the vocational ground shakes. Name the list, list it out. When life shakes, you can stand. When life gets turned upside down, you can stand. Because you're not standing on your own strength, are you? You're standing on the strength of one who conquered death. And so we know that Jesus is the one who created faith in us and who grows it. 
He is the one who gives us power to stand up against life's earthquakes. And when the world shakes, we can stand firm. Look at what else he says in the scripture there. He says, in standing firm, you must continue to believe this truth. Verse 23, stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. Let's ask a question here. When Paul encourages the Colossian church not to drift away from the assurance they received when they heard the good news, what is he talking about? In a nutshell, he's talking about trying to find good news in something other than the one who can give it authentically and back it up with action. Whenever we place our faith, whenever we place our futures, whenever we place our emotional or relational well-being in something that isn't Jesus, the ground shakes and swallows us up in it. When we trust in Christ and follow him in each one of those areas, trusting that he's got a plan and a purpose for each one of us that has to do with personal, average, everyday living, then we can stand. Now we have the choice to walk away from Christ. We know that we can turn and follow other gods. And I would submit in the Christian church, we do it all the time without even realizing it. That is why we come back to the word and we remember who the one is who holds all things together. We remind each other we stick with each other. We support each other. We pray for each other. We show up in each other's lives for one reason only, because Jesus is at the center of all of that. And Jesus is ultimately the one who said, I have loved you, so now go and love who? One another. This is why we preach, why we teach, why we serve, why we meet, while we get coffee, while we grab a beer, while we have a meal, while we get together and have play dates. This is why we go out and spend time with others so that people may know the Jesus that we know. When Paul's talking to the Colossian church and he's got a lot more to say to them, he wants them to remember how powerful this Jesus is. The question for you and me today is, do we know how powerful our Jesus is? And one day, when our lives look like the mound that used to be Colossae, will we still be standing? Because of Jesus, we can say one word in response. Yes, we can stand. We can stand. And we will with him in eternity. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you're so amazing, so powerful, so awesome. You are at the center. Thank you, God, so much for all that you've done. And thank you for all that you continue to do. Your name is above all names, the scripture says. We trust in you. We place our faith in you. At the same time, God, we confess that we've trusted in and placed our faith in other things, in how much money we make and where we live in the school systems our kids in, in the relationships we have, 
in our successes of the past, sometimes even in our failures. God, sometimes we elevate those things above the one whose name is preeminent above all. Today we confess that, God, and, and thank you for taking the effects of that away, the effects of that sin and mistrust. You have saved us for great things. And as we follow Jesus, God, we know that we are following him into a new life that grows and produces fruit. So today and in this week, let us stew on these ideas, on these assurances, because we are yours. We praise the name of your son, who is above all names, the Jesus who is supreme, powerful, loving as our redeemer and savior. And we worship him now. We have praise to him now. In your name we pray, amen, amen.